Hello, and welcome to The Right Side of History, a show dedicated to exploring current events through a historical lens and busting left-wing myths about figures and events of America's past. My name is Jarrett Stepman, a contributor to The Daily Signal. And I'm Fred Lucas, White House correspondent for The Daily Signal. And today we're going to be talking about the Supreme Court, and, and very specifically, political clashes between Supreme Court justices and the president, and, and its history in the United States. Of course, recently there was a, a fairly... A uh, notable clash between Supreme Court Justice uh, John Roberts and President Trump. President Trump uh, criticized a judge uh, and said that he was a, an Obama appointee, in which Roberts actually said that, no, there are no Obama appointees, that judges are supposed to be objectively looking at the law and that they are not really politicians, as as uh, President Trump insinuated, which I – Fred, I, I think this this debate over over judges and, and where they sit on the political spectrum, I think it is a, a really interesting and important one that has a lot of nuances in American history because, you know, as you, you, you've you written, certainly, uh, there have been a lot of battles between Supreme Court justices and presidents in America. Isn't that correct? Uh, yeah, right, right. I, I've got a uh, – I had a piece in the Daily Signal uh, a few days back uh, looking into this about – uh, some of the past feuds, rivalries between a president and a chief justice. This one focused on three, uh, which was um, first uh, looked at uh, Marshall versus Andrew Jackson, John Marshall, Andrew Jackson. Uh, the other looked at uh, Roger Taney and uh, Abraham Lincoln. And then the third uh, was FDR and Charles Evan Hughes. And I, I think in each of these cases, really, um, the chief justice was did have a strong political background, and I I think certainly Thomas Jefferson uh, probably viewed his cousin John Marshall as an Adams judge because uh, they didn't agree on very much and they clashed quite often. That that is a very interesting. Later in the show, we are going to have a, an interview with a historian who who wrote all about John Marshall. But uh, first, we're going to kind of talk about about these cases, which I, I think is is really interesting because of course. The Marshall versus Jackson showdown, which was a very big one, was specifically over these, you know, Indian tribes and their sovereignty, and and set up a lot of the kind of debates going forward. And you know, there was that kind of that that back and forth of you know constitutional debate. And you had a president who, uh, somewhat apocryphally, said that, well, you know, if John Marshall's made his decision, let him enforce it. Now, I've argued that Jackson well, never actually said those words right. um, specifically. Well, as, as most historians like to say, that that was probably fake news, maybe, <laughs> that, that, that quote. But he said something, as I include in the article, something more nuanced that was interpreted in that sense. Yeah, I think the, the original quote from Jackson, I do like to correct the record on this. I think he said that Marshall's decision has fallen stillborn. And what's, right. what's very right. interesting about it is Marshall's decision regarding the Cherokee was in many ways a statement of principles, but as far as – actually forcing uh, Georgia from not removing the Cherokee, there was little the court could actually do because of the Judiciary Act of 1789. Mm -hmm. There was a loophole, which Marshall even mentions in his decision, basically, which I, I think is very interesting. I mean, we're talking about you know the power of the Supreme Court. I think today we have this conception that almost like it's this all-powerful branch that it comes in and swoops in when there's some kind of conflict between Congress, between the states, between the president, and, and kind of finalizes these decisions. But 
you know, maybe oh. we've kind of gone a little too far in thinking that the Supreme Court, you know, is almost a superior branch, not merely co-equal, but actually superior. I think that's really changed more, over time. You more think, equal than others, as <laughs> Orwell might have said in that's Animal right. Farm. But, uh, yeah, the, I mean, we saw that in the Kavanaugh hearing, right? I mean, it was so important, really, to both sides because everything hinged on who controlled the Supreme Court and who would now inhabit that what had been the Kennedy swing seat. It is very interesting, especially when you look at, like, the founders and they spoke at the Constitutional Convention. I mean, they didn't really see – I mean, we talk about today co-equal branches. They didn't really see things that way. They saw Congress as kind of leading the charge on legislation. Congress was really the dominant branch. The executive had his sphere, and the Supreme Court was kind of – you know, there were some mentions of, you know, I think even early on we get this idea of judicial review, which this idea of the Supreme Court, you know, reviews everything to see if it's constitutional, which, of course, I think the founders would say every branch should be making sure that the laws pass this country and it carried out are constitutional. Um, so but that's really that's really kind of changed over time as the kind of branches have moved and shift through power. And, of course, John Marshall was was a big part of that shift in power and, and gaining more power for the Supreme Court and prestige. Yeah, and so something I had in my piece uh, about those uh, rivalries is that uh, we saw Jackson actually um, in his veto message uh, of in 1832 of the National Bank um, talked about how the Supreme Court should not be the final arbiter. The Supreme Court had had a 1819 decision upholding the National Bank. Um, Jackson didn't think the Supreme Court should be a final arbiter of what's constitutional. Lincoln. Actually, uh, when he took the oath of office from Roger Taney, uh, he actually uh, said in his inaugural address, first inaugural address, that uh, uh, the people should not be uh, – if, if, if the Supreme Court is held to decide all national policy, then the people uh, will cease to rule themselves. Interesting. And, and that is uh, something – that's a debate we still have today. I mean uh, Jackson and Lincoln both made similar points at different points in history, and and we still have that debate today. Does the Supreme Court have too much power? Is is it overriding what Congress and the president and elected officials decide? Absolutely, I think that's something. Even uh, Ed Meese, who was Attorney General under Ronald Reagan, who's right. you know obviously works at the Heritage Foundation, also mentioned this idea that the president is also a, a constitutional interpreter, as is Congress. That we shouldn't just rely on the Supreme Court. That this really is something that. We must be considered. We can't just laugh with the with the idea that something may be law may be constitutional or not. Mm-hmm. As uh, you know, the now uh, the Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi once did about about Obamacare uh, long ago. <laughs> uh, but but bringing up Lincoln, I think you know it'd be interesting now to to turn to you know this Lincoln Tawny uh, debate, mm-hmm. which you, which you actually had in your piece because this one almost more fraught just because the issues regarding the Civil War and wartime and Tawny, one of the chief. You could say one of the people who kind of guided this country toward war with this big decision, this now infamous decision, uh, the Dred Scott decision that, of course, made slavery legal throughout the entire country. Right. Yeah. Uh, kind of similar to the modern, you know, Roe v. Wade decision that right, made yeah, abortion I mean, it, legal. It, it, it nationalized a, a what had been essentially a state or regional issue. And um, also, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he thought he was a. Putting the final nail in the coffin on this as a political issue, no need for debate anymore. Uh, <laughs> we can avoid war like this. Peace in our time. Uh, Roger Tan. Uh, that was somebody else actually. Talk, but, talk about the conflict between between yeah, but, Tawny and Lincoln yeah, because this and, was and, very and fraught the, during right, the war. Right, right, right. Yeah, and it was. And then um, uh, when 
Lincoln suspended habeas corpus, which, which I have this in the piece as well. Uh, it was Taney, uh as a uh, in a circuit court decision. In those days, Supreme Court justices would uh, regularly hear circuit court cases. Um, but he ruled that only Congress can suspend uh, the writ of hope, habeas corpus, which is the right to uh, due process and on arrest. Um, Congress ended up giving Lincoln that right. Uh, he he did nothing, and and actually, as a result of Taney's decision in that, uh, <laughs> later on, um, Lincoln did a blockade of Southern ports uh, that went to the Supreme Court. Taney was actually on the losing end of a five four decision in that case. But yeah, throughout their tenure in there, uh, those two clash quite a bit and uh there was i i think uh, un, unlike with uh jackson and marshall i think uh, maybe a little more personal between lincoln and tawny yeah it's interesting i mean uh, you know a lot of the the court during the era i think is interesting because it kind of gets buried and i mean this general wartime i mean a lot of decisions are made ad hoc i mean lincoln when he just ended habeas courses essentially basically just made his decision and let it fly <laughs> Um, which I think is very interesting. But, of course, that court itself actually had some Confederate sympathizers on it. It was, uh, again, it's kind of an interesting question about, you know, especially wartime, you know, the, the limits of presidential power. How much can a court stop a president from doing something from potentially saving the country? I mean, that is part of the constitutional duty of the president to uphold uh, the Constitution of the United States and, and the Union itself. So I think that does bring up a lot of issues. Now, the, the last thing that you kind of brought up here uh, is this this kind of debate with this guy that not a lot of people maybe necessarily know, Charles Evan Hughes. Yeah, the, uh, can, can you talk about can you talk about this last uh, this last well, case I, that you? I, I think uh, Charles Evan Hughes and, and I write about him as having the rivalry with uh, FDR, um, and. Uh, He's interesting, one, because he was the Republican presidential nominee against Woodrow Wilson in 1916, a very close race. Uh, he had been the uh, he'd been on the Supreme Court before, left for politics, uh, and uh, he was actually a Republican secretary of state uh, <laughs> under Harding. And then uh, Herbert Hoover uh, appointed him to the Supreme Court as a chief justice to replace William Howard Taft. Um as an aside, I don't think we we could ever get regular politicians like Charles Evan Hughes, William Howard Taft, for that matter, Earl Warren, uh, on the high court. Yeah, I, T- today I, as in the past, which today it's pretty much all professional judges, lawyers, that that type of thing. And I think that is an interesting part, you know, kind of returning to mm-hmm. you know what we started the show off is this idea of well, is somebody an Obama judge, is somebody a Trump judge, is somebody a Republican, yes. is somebody a Democrat? I think. Large part of our history, I mean, there were such things as, you know, a Republican-appointed judge. They had their own point of view. Now, now I think they're much more – judges are much more in one or two, you know, ideological camps or philosophical camps. And you have originalists. You have the kind of progressives on the Supreme Court. Earlier times, you may have had more regional attachments. You may have had more personal attachments in some cases. Uh, but that has really changed. It does seem like today we kind of expect – uh, our, our Justice Supreme Court to have law degrees of our major institutions mm-hmm. like Harvard, like Yale, the Ivy Leagues. Uh, and, and at one and, point in time, you could see somebody who was a presidential candidate sitting right, right. on the Supreme Court, which I, I, I find to be very interesting. It's it's very different than what we're used to. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the, the closest thing maybe was Elena Kagan, the Solicitor General for Obama, became a Supreme Court justice. That might have, uh, I mean, that that's about as far and political as you would get today. I think uh, that's uh, 
uh, you know, she's never she had never been a judge. But um, yeah, uh, the and and Hughes and Roosevelt, uh, you maybe Roosevelt might have seen Hughes as a Hoover judge, but uh, uh, but Hughes was actually very good about building coalitions. He 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 brought together uh, what were called the four horsemen of that time. They they were the four staunchly conservative judges with the liberal wing of the court, and uh, they got a unanimous decision against. Uh, the National Industrial Recovery Act, which was sort of the, viewed as the backbone of uh, what FDR wanted to do in expanding the government into the economy. Um, the, there, he also put together a coalition of six to three uh, to strike down the Agriculture Adjustment Act. So, uh, And I think you, you brought up, I think, an interesting point with this, Fred, is that he, he actually worked with a lot of uh, justices who were – Democrat appointees and a lot right. of his decisions. This wasn't just a party line vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a certain amount of just judges making their decisions. And of course, there was a certain amount of camaraderie on the court right. that I think even today we see maybe even more than the other branches, which are, I mean, there is some amount of camaraderie, but we've seen, of course, recently with, you know, Antonin Scalia, Ruth Bader Ginsburg having yeah, a very, very good close, relationship, right. despite the fact that they politically and philosophically are so different from one another. But you, you do kind of see this through Supreme Court history, coalitions changing and justices uh, maybe joining one side or another based on certain decisions. The Hughes case is interesting because there were definitely some, as, as you mentioned before the show, uh, some unanimous decisions against the the, the Roosevelt right. administration that yes, Roosevelt that, reacted to very strongly. Yeah, yeah, clearly with his uh, court packing <laughs> plan. Uh, and that is... He didn't succeed in that, but actually Roosevelt went on to say, well, we got about 98% of what we wanted to get done with the court plan. Uh, and, and that's because after that was uh, – as the, the Senate shot it down. They, they thought it was too much encroachment on an independent judiciary. But um, there was some debate, and the Supreme Court sort of started siding. Enough justices came over to side with Roosevelt uh, – and uh, ruling these uh, New Deal laws were constitutional. That's persuaded the Senate, okay, we don't have to make this extraordinary measure and allow FDR to have 15 justices on the Supreme Court. It is interesting. I mean, you have today, especially from, I think, the left in America, this idea that now the court is dangerous because, of course, that the court's landscape has shifted. And you're kind of seeing similar rhetoric now. A lot of people on the left are thinking right. about court packing plans and how to somehow get rid of the court. And you see it. I mean, even that FDR was... made some arguments that, oh, judges on the court are getting too old and we need to find a way to get rid of the old judges and right. phase them out. And we're talking now there some, especially at Vox.com, you know, of course, you know, they have a study saying that, well, we need to get rid of all the judges after, you know, 15 years or they put some kind of term limits on justices. I mean, a lot of it seems very uh, partisan in nature. And, you know, after losing, losing, uh, you say, the control of the courts or losing a few elections. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty sure thing of had Hillary Clinton been able to <laughs> appoint. <laughs> Probably or, wouldn't have seen the the ideas, although maybe right. they would have had still had some court packing plans. So you, right. you, you never know. It's a right. little peculiar more choices, to yeah. have that that opinion when the somebody from the other party is the president, uh, you know, could could potentially just take their ideas and run with it uh, and pack the courts himself. Yeah. But I think the American people have generally been very fond of. The structure of their government, the, the fact that we now have nine justices, even though there's nothing on the Constitution that says right. you have to have nine, I think people seem to be very wary of any changes to that fundamental system, which you could say is one thing that has remained fairly constant. Yeah. I mean, there I, has been a respect of the court I, 
from Americans, certainly today. Well, yeah, yeah. and and uh, uh, it's important to know uh, Charles Evan Hughes had a role. He uh, sent a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee, which became a public letter, of course, uh, saying that the uh, justices are handling the calendar just fine. Uh, he uh, <laughs> and it, behind the scenes, though, he told these senators, "This is an attack on an independent judiciary. You can't do this." And and that is, and and the public saw it the same way. I mean, it was yes. a, a sophisticated public. Uh, um, FDR won a huge reelection landslide in 1936. By 1937, the public was solidly against his court packing plan because people saw it for what it was. Absolutely. So going back to kind of the original battle we talked about with John Marshall and Andrew Jackson, we're actually very uh, fortunate to have a, a author and historian who's recently written a book about John Marshall, who I think is one of the, the great founders of the United States, sometimes not really as well known as others like Alexander Hamilton and George Washington, but certainly one of the great men. And in some ways, you could say the father of the, the modern Supreme Court and John Marshall. So uh, we're going to have a, an interview with him uh, coming up next. Want to get up to speed about the Supreme Court? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast about everything that's happening at the Supreme Court and what the justices are up to. We are now joined by Richard Brookheiser, historian and senior editor at National Review, who has written over a dozen books, mostly about the founding fathers. His latest work is John Marshall, The Man Who Made the Supreme Court. Thank you for joining us, Richard. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I, I do have to say right off the bat, I mean, you've written a number of great books over the years, probably about, I would say, a dozen now. Once on George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, the, the, the Adams family, the, the John Adams family, and one really great one on Governor Morris, who uh, I think hasn't had enough attention. You, had, you wrote a great book about that. But I have noticed a bit of a pattern that you do tend to write about a lot of Federalists. Is that a, is that a, is that a trend that I, I'm noting that's, uh, that's true about your works? Maybe I'm the last Federalist the PR guy left standing. <laughs> um, you, you know, I think, I think it evolved naturally. My, my first book was about George Washington, and then my second was about Alexander Hamilton, which which uh, is kind of an obvious way to go from Washington if you're going on. Um, because in the internal fights in the Washington cabinet, uh, Hamilton comes off a little bit better than Thomas Jefferson was. So that, you know, plus Hamilton's story is so dramatic. And this was before the musical. I, w I was doing it before Hamilton was cool. But then once you've made that uh, step from Washington to Hamilton, then you're uh, then you're kind of in that world. But uh, I do have to say, Thomas Jefferson appears in all the books. Uh, in this book, the book about uh, John Marshall, the man who made the Supreme Court, he's the antagonist. He and Marshall were second cousins once removed. They detested each other. Uh, Marshall hated very few people, but uh, Jefferson was one of them. Uh, Jefferson hated rather a lot of people, but Marshall was always high on his list. Uh, Marshall thought Jefferson was a demagogue. Jefferson thought Marshall was a sophist. He, he warned Joseph Story before he got on the Supreme Court that you must never answer a direct question that Marshall puts you. If he asked me if the sun were shining, I would say, I don't know, sir. I cannot tell. <laughs> because Jefferson thought that Marshall would just get Marbury versus Madison out of whatever you said. He'd just twist it into a predetermined legal conclusion. So in the course of this book, um, 
Marshall is like Br'er Rabbit. He keeps getting away from Jefferson, I think. He keeps besting him on specific clashes that they have. And yet at the end, there is an unanswered point that Jefferson has. Do we want the final say on constitutional questions to be in the hands of men and women who are not answerable to the people? Uh, Our Constitution, I would argue, puts it there. But is that, in fact, the best place to leave it? And I I think that's a a perennially unresolved and maybe unresolvable question. So I try to give the devil his due at the very end. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is is a big deal. I mean, John Marshall was not the— First uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court was actually uh, John Jay, which, but I think what a lot of people attribute the the power of the Supreme Court as, well, almost a co-equal branch, and in some ways today, I think the way people look at it, almost a superior branch to the others. I think maybe a lot of other founders may have had an issue with that, but it is interesting that Marshall, who's not maybe quite as well known as some of the other founders like George Washington or Alexander Hamilton. Uh, really is, in a, some ways, you could say that the father of the, the Supreme Court, and there was this great case, the, the Marbury versus Madison, but that wasn't all. I mean, he really was a big part of shaping the power of the Supreme Court and, and the early uh, part of the American Republic. Would you say that's true, Richard? Yes, yes. Uh, and you mentioned John Jay, the first Chief Justice, and uh, he was offered the job again in 1801 in the lame duck days of the Adams administration. It, uh, the third Chief Justice, Oliver Ellsworth, quit because of ill health. And so the first thing John Adams, the outgoing president, did is he, is he sent John Jay's name to the Senate, who confirmed him. And then he got a letter from Jay saying he wasn't going to go back. He said the federal judiciary lacks energy, weight, and dignity. So I'm not going to take this job again. Uh, and it was Marshall's tenure. Uh, Marshall was the man that, that Adams then uh, turned to. Uh, he lasted in the job for 34 years, still a record. Uh, he was able to engineer consensus among his brother justices, even of the other party, when Jefferson and Madison start uh, appointing them to fill Federalist vacancies. And he he writes decisions with an authority and a weight that are were persuasive to much of the country and had lasting effects. And, you know, you mentioned Marbury, and that's the famous one. We all heard about it in school. But, but the ones that strike me as the most interesting were the ones having to do with contracts and commerce. Uh, Fletcher v. Peck on the, on the uh, contract laws, Gibbons v. Ogden on, on commerce, Dartmouth v. Woodward on corporations. And these really supplied the legal armature for the kind of diverse, uh, free market economy that the United States developed, and that and Alexander Hamilton was particularly keen on developing. And, you know, you'd have to give Hamilton the, uh, the prize for being the most influential in terms of our economic formation, but it needed legal backup and legal grounding, and that was supplied by John Marshall and his court. Uh, so this is uh, Fred Lucas. Uh, I was uh, going to ask you, just uh, uh, following up on that point about John Jay almost feeling like it wasn't worth his time uh, uh, at, at that point uh, in history with the Supreme Court. Uh, now we saw with this confirmation battle over Kavanaugh, uh, the fate of the republic seems to hang on who controls the Supreme Court and every mm-hmm. decision that comes through. Uh, one know if you might want to talk a little bit about that, how 
Uh, is that because of Marshall, do you think, had made, made this court into something so powerful? Well, I mean, certainly the, the answer is yes. He turned it from a, a stepchild of, of the Constitution to a co-equal branch. Now, did he also make it an overweening branch? I mean, in some sense, you could say yes, but you would also have to say then that George Washington was the father of the imperial presidency because he, you know, he launched that office with such dignity and success. And, you know, and yet time goes on and and other people uh, uh, play their roles. Uh, You mentioned the Kavanaugh hearings, and and the point I always make to uh, audiences when I'm talking to them is that one of Marshall's colleagues on the court, a Jefferson appointee, a man named Brockholz Livingston, he had killed a man before he got on the court. He, he'd had a duel with a Federalist. He was a Republican, a member of Jefferson's party, and he shot the guy in the groin, and he bled out in five minutes. And um, nobody mentioned this when he was being confirmed. So <laughs> standards, uh, standards have changed. Oh, well, if, uh, if, if I could follow up to uh, also something recently in the news. We've had this tussle between uh, John Roberts and President Trump, uh, who called a uh, district judge a an Obama judge. Uh, right. What would Marshall have thought of that? And also, do you think Jefferson would have considered uh, Marshall to be an Adams judge? Oh, absolutely, definitely. Je- Jefferson thought that that Marshall was like a like a Federalist sapper or, uh, working <laughs> under the foundations of, of Republican dominance, but. Um, Okay, on the Twitter war between Roberts and Trump, I don't think Marshall would ever tweet. Uh, he, he realized that the prestige of the court depended on its being above politics. Uh, now, he certainly knew the political circumstances which had produced his own seat on the court, and he very much understood the politics that raged around it all throughout, throughout most of his tenure. So he, he's not a naive he would have agreed uh, uh, with Trump as far as that went. But his ideal was really closer to Roberts's. He wanted to create a court that would see itself as being outside of the political uh, scrum and above it. And so he uh, encouraged unanimous opinions. Uh, he encouraged his fellow justices not to engage in politics openly. Uh, this began to fall apart at the end of his time. He loses his control a bit when he's in his 70s and in the 1830s, and he gets some new colleagues who are just political animals. I mean, they, they see the court as their stepping stone to higher office. Uh, it never works for them, but he, he's got a couple of justices who that's what they're all about. So he's, you know, he's frustrated in that respect. But that's what he tried to make the court and succeeded in making it for at least 30 years was a body where people wouldn't do that. Well, talk about the the kind of peak Marshall Court because it's it, it is interesting that there are so many small R Jeffersonian Republican judges that are appointed to the court. I mean, I don't think he ever had at any point a Federalist majority, and yet, of course, a lot of decisions went his way. Talk about his ability to influence and bring a lot of judges over into his camp and and see eye to eye with him on a lot of decisions. Right. I mean, what. The only Federalist majority is at the very beginning when there are, you know, six Federalists because they've all been appointed by, by Washington and Adams. But after 11 years, the partisan balance is two Federalists and five Republicans because, you know, some of the old Federalists died or quit. 
Haddon, Jefferson, and Madison picked their replacements. I think Marshall won this consensus in a couple of ways. The first thing, he was a genial guy. He liked being with people. People liked being with him. Uh, Joseph Story, who would become one of his colleagues, the first time he heard Marshall, he was a lawyer arguing before the Supreme Court, and he wrote home, and he said, I love his laugh. <laughs> I love his laugh. That, that's an interesting thing for a person to notice about a historical figure back then. I can't recall anyone commenting on John Adams's laugh or Alexander Hamilton's laugh, but that's what struck Story. So there's his geniality. Uh, the second thing is he defers to colleagues of his who are more expert in certain areas of law than he is. So if it's a case involving uh, land titles, uh, he would give the lead to Justice Thomas Todd, who was really up on that. And then so, you know, when you defer to other people, then they defer to you. They give you deference in return. Uh, the third thing is Marshall is always the smartest man in the room. Uh, and all his colleagues and all the lawyers who argue before the court, many of them brilliant men, they all acknowledge this. Uh, one one man who became Attorney General, William Wirt, said that, that Marshall's mind was like the Atlantic Ocean. Everybody else's minds were like mere ponds. That's the impression he made on people. And then, you know, in addition to his 34 years uh, on, as Chief Justice, 11 of those years, from 1812, uh, from 1811 to 23, there are no personnel changes on the court. You know, that's only happened one other time in the court's history. But so he's got this long stretch where he presides over it, and then there's this big period in the middle where nobody, uh, nobody arrives and nobody leaves. So he's able to work these other qualities, his, his, his uh, geniality, his deference, his intelligence, upon his fellow justices. Okay. Um, and I, I, I thought it was interesting uh, that Marshall, in some ways, considered himself a, sort of a populist, uh, whereas the Federalists are widely characterized as sort of an aristocratic party. Right. Well, Marshall's populism was profound, but it was very specific. He thought the, what he called the supreme act of original will had been the uh, writing and ratifying of the Constitution. Now, of course, the writing of the Constitution in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, that was a secret meeting. Uh, there, was, there, were no, there was no public discussion of what was going on. People only learned what all those men were doing when they had finally finished the Constitution and, and released it into the world. But then there followed an entire year of the ratifying conventions in, in the states and public debate on this document. It was a year-long national process of people arguing the pros and cons of this new fundamental law and whether or not we should have it. And John Marshall was very involved in that. He was a delegate to the Virginia Ratifying Convention. It was one of the last ratifying conventions held. Virginia was a must-win state for the Constitution. It was the largest state. Uh, it was, in many ways, the most eminent state. Uh, if Virginia had stayed out, it would have been a, a fatal blow to the new form of government. And the debate uh, and the contest in Virginia was a very close call. You had brilliant people on both sides. 
James Madison led the pro-Constitution forces. Patrick Henry led the antis. Uh, George Mason was an anti. John Marshall was a pro. Uh, it, you know, it was really an all-star game that they had in Virginia. So, so Marshall, remembering this, says that this was a supreme and original act of will on the part of the American people. They decided collectively that this is what we're going to have uh, to rule us. And so in that sense, he, he was a populist. He was going to defend that act against uh, later people, in his mind, dumber people or more demagogic people who are going to try to chip it or, or wear it away or violate it. So so on that topic, I, I think something I, I had to ask about Marshall's, you say he had a great battles with, with Thomas Jefferson, his cousin, but I think most people, when they think of Marshall, they think of his clashes with uh, uh, Andrew Jackson in, in particular. And, and it seems like, uh, of course, they in some ways were great antagonists to one another. But I did find it interesting. I've actually read the eulogy of Andrew Jackson, which he called Marshall one of the greatest men of his age. Uh, talk Wasn't about the that kind a of nice thing. I mean, so gracious. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? politician doing that. Well, we are seeing some nice eulogies about George H.W. Bush, but it was very, I was very struck by that too, you know, coming from Jackson and they'd really locked horns. It, it does It does strike me because I think the reputation, of course, is that, you know, Jackson's this, this great bully and, you know, he's this man who was kind of say everything, but would say this about a political rival. I mean, obviously these men were uh, on different sides of a lot of political issues of their day, but it seems like they at least had a kind of at least respect for one another. I mean, they may have seemed to have political battles, but it doesn't seem that the two men were personally at odds. Of course, Jackson took many things personally, but I, I was very much struck by that. And, you know, a certain kind of level of respect for a political rival. Uh, but, of course, they did battle on the constitutional issues. They battled over the political questions and uh, especially, of course, you know, famously the Cherokee cases. But that wasn't it. It seems like they really were butting heads through most of their careers. Well, I, I guess the um, the reason they could have this respect is they're not second cousins. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're not they're not related to each other. But you know, uh, the other factor is Jackson wins. You know, Jackson is just more uh, determined. He has more follow through than Jefferson. Uh, he criticizes uh, uh, Marshall's uh, constitutional interpretation of of McCullough v. Maryland. He does that in a public statement. And uh, the Cherokee decision, the Marshall's second one, uh, Worcester v. Georgia, uh, is never enforced. It just falls by the wayside. Uh, Now, it's a complicated story, and and what happens at the very end of that process is that the the missionary who brought the suit was persuaded uh, to drop it. So uh, Andrew Jackson was never in the position of being notified by the court that he was not seeing that the laws were being faithfully executed. In other words, the court never had to tell him, you know, you're completely ignoring our ruling. But that's what he did. That's what the state of Georgia did. And then the result uh, some years later was that the Cherokees were, were forced marched to Oklahoma. So that was a clash that Marshall simply lost. I mean, Jackson just toughed toughed him out and and prevailed. Absolutely. Um, Coming back to Jefferson a little bit, um, uh, Marshall viewed the impeachment of Justice Chase as a potential threat to the independent judiciary. Uh, Do do you think it was a failing uh, for Jefferson, who had always been an advocate for separation of powers and limited government, to 
that he didn't look at the big picture here, that Jefferson was only looking at sort of the, the politics of getting rid of this justice he didn't like? Well, certainly that's that was the view of Jefferson and his party. Now, you know, it's often hard to track Thomas Jefferson's footprints because he, he likes to direct people by indirection. Uh, he, he has a hidden hand presidency. So the lead was being um, openly taken by Jeffersonians in Congress, and some of those certainly believe that impeachment was simply a house-cleaning tool. It uh, didn't have to be high crimes or misdemeanors. It just meant, you know, we disagree with these guys, so we're going to get rid of them and, and, and replace them with, with people we like better. And certainly that was Marshall's fear, that if Chase went down, Congress would just march march through the whole court and clean it out. And he was so alarmed that he was even willing to consider giving uh, Congress a veto over Supreme Court decision, which is the only time in his life he ever contemplated such a thing. But he thought, you know, if, if, the, if the alternative is that versus, the, you know, everybody being uh, kicked out, I'll, I'll take the veto. Now, it doesn't come to that. Justice Chase, uh, who was impeached for some intemperate conduct, uh, both during the Jefferson administration and before, uh, he was not convicted by the Senate. So, um, you know, Jefferson loses that round. And I have to say one thing about Jefferson. When he, when he loses a fight, he can leave it alone. I mean, he can get, you know, he can get uh, very caught up in the fight. Uh, he can even get very angry at the moment of loss, but then he, there's something about him. He can calm down. He can he can move on. He can go to the next thing, and uh, I don't think that's necessarily a bad quality in a politician because, you know, you got to fight another day, and and every day has its own problems. Absolutely. So one final question here: uh, the court seems to have. I mean, there certainly have been changes over the years. I think. The people that sit on the court now tend to be more professional lawyers. I think at one time they tended to be uh, – a lot of times they were just political. They weren't necessarily just coming straight from the Ivies onto the court and whatnot. But you know, given all the changes we've seen over the years, and some of the things have been kind of solidified, you think John Marshall today would recognize the court's place in American politics as something that – that he shaped, that, that he would uh, agree with its role in, in how it shapes American politics today? Or do you think that he would be concerned about the court or would see it as fundamentally different? How do you think Marshall uh, would view this? Well, I think he'd, you know, he'd be unhappy with all the 5-4 decisions, whichever mm-hmm. way they leaned. And he'd think, can't you guys, and ladies now, of course, can't you all get along? And I think the first thing he might suggest is, why don't we all have a glass of Madeira? (laughs) (laughs) Which was his favorite drink and often served to his fellow justices. I do like that aspect of his character, that that he seems to be a a man who did like to to drink and uh, didn't exactly dress well, as you kind of uh, mentioned in your book, which I thought is an also interesting uh, facet of his character, but certainly seems to be... Uh, one of the great judges in American history, if not the greatest, and certainly I think among the greatest of the founders, maybe didn't get enough credit for what he's done for this country, but certainly uh, played a major role. And, you know, there's so much attention put on Alexander Hamilton today, really shaping the courts for kind of the Hamiltonian vision of America as this great, well, you could say capitalist nation, uh, a nation devoted to free markets and 
and uh, an industry that it's really become. So I do definitely urge the listeners to to pick up uh, Brookheiser's book. I mean, he, he always does such a great job uh, of bringing really the character of these men to life and a lot of short biographies, but really distill these individuals to exactly what they are, especially now as I think our nation really needs to, to bring back a lot of the greats from our country's history. And certainly among the founders, Marshall is among those greats. So, so Richard, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. We really appreciate you calling in. Okay. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks to everyone for joining us on the right side of history. If you'd like to listen to past and future broadcasts, you can also check us out on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or the Daily Signal website. Also, take a look at the Daily Signal's Facebook page when we air our next program. And if you are further interested in our work, check out my Twitter, at Jarrett Stepman, and Fred's Twitter handle, at FredLucasWH. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to The Right Side of History, executive produced by Jarrett Stepman and Fred Lucas. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.